All right, I'm going to pray and ask for God's blessing on our time. God, thank you so much for your word, for being willing uh, when, when it was not required of you to speak to us, to speak to us so clearly, so sufficiently and powerfully. God, you've really appointed your word as the means by which we learn to obey you. This is the means by which we are instructed by you. And your word is all the hope we have. We would be completely adrift and lost without the clarity that your word provides. So as we turn our attention to it now, I do pray that you would be honored by the next hour, that you would be pleased to draw near to us as we draw near to you through what you've said. Grant us clarity so that we might be more obedient and honor you with our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is the fifth and final installment to this series, Blood for Clarity. And we opened this series looking at 1 Kings chapter 22, the story of a powerful prophet of God who stood on the clarity of God's word. And as a helpful contrast and way to round out everything we've said thus far, I thought it would be helpful to look at another prophet who did the exact opposite who allowed God's word, God's clear word to him to be obscured. In both of these events, what ends up happening to the prophet is the same. They both lose their lives. But as we saw with Micaiah in 1 Kings chapter 22, he lost his life in a noble way because he stood with God and stood on God's clarity, this prophet that we'll see did the exact opposite with similar results. He lost his life by not God's clarity, but by allowing God's clarity to be obscured. And so open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 13. 1 Kings chapter 13. What we'll see in 1 Kings 13 is that obscurity robs God's people of what would be otherwise the glory of martyrdom, of suffering for Christ nobly in a praiseworthy way for praiseworthy reasons, a noble cause. Obscurity actually robs God's people of that blessing. And obscuring God's word is positively ruinous for us. To whatever degree God's word, which is in itself clear, to whatever degree it's allowed to be obscured, well, to that degree we risk the ruin of our own lives and quite possibly even our own souls. 
And so let's start, just follow along as I read in 1 Kings chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Now behold, there came a man of God from Judah to Bethel by the word of Yahweh, while Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense. What we're going to see unfold in this passage is the blessing of clarity and the ruin of obscurity. The blessing of clarity and the ruin of obscurity unfold in four scenes in 1 Kings chapter 13. And in verse 1, we see the first scene, which is the prophet's preparation with a clear word from God. The prophet's preparation with a clear word from God. The whole scene is introduced with this behold. Now behold. Uh, it's a, a shift in the story and an introduction of something completely new up to this point. And it's almost like this man of God, uh, another title used for prophet, this man of God seemingly just appears. <laughs> he just appears when... King Jeroboam, the king of Israel, now a divided empire. You'll remember that because of Solomon's idolatry and disobedience, the kingdom was given to Jeroboam in part. God promised that to him. And so after Solomon had passed the kingdom on to Rehoboam, his adversary Jeroboam took part of the nation 10 tribes, and left with Judah, David's tribe, was merely Benjamin. And so this behold is uh, indicating that there's a shift that's taking place. Uh, the King, King Jeroboam just so happened to be standing by the altar to burn incense. Now that... You know, if you're not familiar with the context, that can almost sound noble. Oh, man, look at the king, faithful, obedient to the Lord, wanting to make a sacrifice. But that's not at all what's happening. If you just jump back up a few verses to verse 26, after the kingdom's been, been divided, Jeroboam Instead of obe being obedient to the Lord and receiving the promises that were made to him, if he were obedient, Jeroboam instead in verse 26 of chapter 12 says in his heart, now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of Yahweh at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king consulted and made two golden calves, and he said to them, it is too much for you to go to, up to Jerusalem. Behold, your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. Almost verbatim, really uh, taken right out of Exodus 32, when there was another golden calf made, uh, and the people said essentially the same thing that we're reading here, behold, the gods that brought you up from the land of Egypt. It was a lie then, it's a lie now. 
But he takes these two golden calves. He sets one, according to verse 29, in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Bethel would have been uh, hardly 10 miles north of Jerusalem, and Dan would have been somewhere between 90 and 100 miles uh, from Bethel. And so what he's essentially done is put one calf at the southern border of what is now this divided kingdom, Israel's territory, and one at the uppermost fringe of Israel's new territory uh, as they've been divided. And so essentially what he's done is made these two calves and then everything else that we read in verses 30 and following, which it's a, a new priesthood, a system of worship, a new altar. Essentially, he's crafted his own religion, and he's put the headquarters not in one place, but in two, so that everybody in Israel between Bethel and Dan is now closer to these places of worship than Jerusalem. And so he has catered to the convenience of anyone else who is willing to participate in these idolatrous practices, he has made it convenient for them to worship there instead of what was really Yahweh's house in Jerusalem, in the city of David. So when we read in chapter 13 that he was standing by the altar, that is in Bethel, that is the wrong altar, <laughs> not the one given to uh, Moses and Solomon by God that he approved of, but this is the wrong altar, uh, offering the wrong sacrifice to burn incense. This is idolatrous worship that Jeroboam is participating in. And we notice the prophet's preparation because he just so happens, notice where he's coming from, enemy territory from Judah. He has called a prophet from Judah to go up and confront Jeroboam in this idolatrous practice. He was at the closest 10 miles away from Bethel. But however far he was away in Judah's territory, he just so happens to arrive at the very moment that Jeroboam is practicing his idolatry. And so clearly this was not merely man, but this appearance by this man of God was ordained by God himself. He's been prepared by God. He has heard a clear word from God. He is submitting to that clear word from God, and he is being used by God, even sovereignly directed at the appointed time for this confrontation. The prophet has been prepared with a clear word from God, and he delivers that clear word in the verses that follow. That's the second scene that unfolds here, is the prophet's proclamation of a clear word from God. Verse 2 reads, he cried against the altar by the word of Yahweh and said, O altar, altar, thus says Yahweh, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, 
And on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Then he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which Yahweh has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be split apart, and the ashes which are on it shall be poured out. Now the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar in Bethel. Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him! But his hand which he stretched out against him dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was split apart, and the ashes were poured out from the altar, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of Yahweh. The king said to the man of God, Please entreat Yahweh your God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated Yahweh, and the king's hand was restored to him, and it became as it was before. This prophet clearly proclaimed what he had clearly received from God. And herein you see the blessing of clarity. He is bold. You see no hesitation in him. There is nothing in his mind to be afraid of, even before the stature of this significant individual, the king of Israel. He is fearless because he knows what he has heard from God. And so as he receives what he's clearly communicated from God, we see that there is no fear to be had here. There is tremendous blessing in the clarity that he produces. Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flees when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. The righteous are bold as a lion, even though the wicked flee when, when no one pursues. The idea there being the one who lives in keeping with God's word possesses an unshakable boldness because he's standing on the clarity and authority of what God has said. That is what we see happening in 1 Kings 13 with this prophet. Some things to note about this proclamation. This proclamation is direct. It's, he speaks sort of past King Jeroboam to the altar itself, uh, to the the false worship that's happening, right? The altar being symbolic or representative of the entire system of idolatry. And he says against the altar, what's going to happen to the altar? Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and on you, speaking to the altar, he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you and human bones will burn on you. This is direct, and it's clear. There's no ambiguity in what he's saying. There's nothing left up to the imagination, really, of the hearer. It is clear. This is exactly what's going to happen. Even the person, it, it possesses a specificity so precise that he names the child, this would have been some 300 years before Josiah ever existed. 
says where he's going to come from. He's going to be born of the house of David, so he's going to be a direct descendant of David. And his name is going to be Josiah. This clarity, this prophecy, this word from God was direct, clear, prophetic, and specific. Contrary to the the spurious claims to modern-day prophecy that that we hear about, this is specific, naming the individual. It's accurate. You can jump forward, if you wanted to, several uh, chapters in chapter 23. This comes to fruition exactly as it was prophesied. So it's not only direct, clear, prophetic, specific, it's accurate. Uh, We see in later chapters that it's eventually fulfilled. All true prophecy is truly fulfilled as it's predicted. But even in this passage, we see that it's confirmed before it's even fulfilled. Before the son that is named Josiah, is born to the house of David and fulfills what he says by burning human bones on this altar and uh, destroying the priest who, who actually sacrificed at that altar. Before then, verse 3 says that he gives a sign that this would in fact occur. And he says, behold, the altar shall be split apart and the ashes which are on it, that is on it currently right now as the sacrifices are being made, these ashes which are on it shall be poured out. And somewhere between the time that he says that and the scene ends, And he leaves, it says, verse 5, the altar also was split apart, and the ashes were poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of Yahweh. And so as a sort of proof beforehand that what he declared would be fulfilled, would in fact be fulfilled, he says, here's the sign that everything that I'm saying is going to come true. And then and there, this altar, which probably would have, uh, may have been comprised of by, by rocks uncut by human hands or uh, fashioned in some sort of likeness like the altar in Jerusalem. So it would have been uh, made of wood and overlaid with gold if that was in fact the pattern that they adopted for this altar. Either way, whether this is something that's man-made with precious metals and wood, or whether it's something that wasn't handcrafted and just compiled by stones. In either case, the material that was used was broken. It was broken apart. And in both passages, in verses 4 and 5, rather, you'll see that the passive is used. It was broken, or it was split, is the wording that was used, meaning It didn't split itself. Someone else split it. I think this is a a divine passive. These things happen by God himself. This was, in a sense, God's confirmation that this was, in fact, his word coming through this man of God, coming through this prophet. And they got the sign then and there 
that what he had said would in fact take place at a later date. And so the prophets prepared with a clear word from God. He proclaims that clear word that he had received from God. And then while he is being protected from the king, he's being protected as he proclaims God's clear words. He's being protected from the king's words. It's interesting to note. As Jeroboam is uh, calling for those in attendance, his own protection, to seize this prophet of God, his hand decays in front of him. The same hand pointing at this prophet, it just rots uh, to the point that the muscles don't even work anymore. He can't even bring his arm back to himself. It's, it's interesting to note how hateful he is toward this prophet because this was not at all his attitude toward the prophet who said, hey, the kingdom's going to be yours just a chapter earlier. He appreciated that prophet. He uh, wanted to hear that clear word from God. And now that God's clear word has something contrary to say to him, he despises it. Similar to what we saw happening in, in chapter 22 with Ahab. Um, wherever a clear word from God is despised, you can bet on it. There is some type of idolatry happening in the heart. There's something in the human heart. There's some desire, something, some sinful inclination or practice that's being cherished at the heart level that prevents the person hearing the clear word of God from being embraced and loved and welcomed. King Jeroboam, in verse 6, recognizes his plight, asks this prophet to entreat Yahweh on his behalf, which he gladly does in verse 6. So you can see this isn't a personal vendetta from some prophet, you know, aligned with the political interests of Judah, set against the king whose political interests are with Israel. This is not what's happening there. He has no personal beef with Jeroboam. This is purely about God's cause. And so he willingly prays for him. God willingly obliges and restores, in his kindness, restores Jeroboam's hand. It becomes as it was before. And so in a sort of... Uh, effort to reward the prophet or gain an ally. In verse 7, Jeroboam said to the man of God, come home with me and refresh yourself and I will give you a reward. No word about repentance, no indication that I'm acknowledging the truthfulness of what you said. I deserve this rebuke. Let's get rid of the altar before this man named Josiah even arrives and just do away with the idolatrous practices. But Jeroboam just wants to simply reward this man for restoring his hand. 
This is where we see in verse 8, this third scene begin to unfold, and that's the prophet's prohibition, the prophet's prohibition by a clear word from God. Herein, we see clarity just saturating this passage. He's received a clear word. He's delivered a clear word. He's even been told what not to do clearly by God. Obscurity is, is really nowhere in view when it comes to this prophet. Here's the prohibition that he articulates in verse 8. He tells the king, if you were to give me half your house, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of Yahweh. Here again, a clear word from God. It was commanded me by the word of Yahweh saying, you shall not eat or you shall eat no bread, nor drink water, nor return by the way which you came. So even the, the path that he came, the path that he took to get from Judah's territory into Bethel, God told him, don't even take that same path back. So the directions are clear. Don't eat, don't drink, don't return in these ways. And so, verse 10, obediently to this prophet's commendation, he went another way and did not return by the way which he came to Bethel. Denies the delicacies of the king, <laughs> turns away from that, won't even drink water in this place where God's word is despised, won't eat bread in this place where God's word is despised. God's prohibited those things from him and even goes a different way. So he can't eat, he can't drink water, and he can't return by the same way. So if he took the shortest path to get there, he's got a longer path back into Judah's territory. Uh, still would have, could have been, he could have taken another route and still been within 10 to 12 miles of getting back into Judah's territory. But he is prevented from having any sustenance until he arrives back where he came from. The only thing in sight for this clarity, uh, for this prophet, is clarity. And that is good. That is a blessing for him. He is not fearful. There's nothing to be afraid of at this point, there's no disobedience. From him in sight, there's only commendable, praiseworthy practices up until this point for this prophet. And it's because there's clarity. There's clarity coming from God's word, and there's clarity obtained by the prophet himself. Well, with this fourth scene, that all changes. Look at verse 11. Now an old prophet was living in Bethel. And his sons came and told him all the deeds which the man of God had done that day in Bethel, the words which he had spoken to the king, these also they related to their father. Their father, this old prophet, said to them, which way did he go? Now his sons had seen the way which the man of God who came from Judah had gone. Then he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he rode away on it. So he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak tree, and he said to him, 
are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. You have to wonder why this older prophet didn't go to Jeroboam. Had he ever confronted Jeroboam? Was he faithful? Why didn't God use him? The text doesn't tell us precisely. But what it does show us is that he's pursuing this younger prophet. And because he's in the same city where the idolatrous practices are happening, this center of worship in Bethel, he's able to catch up to the other prophet within only a few miles. So he's not even out of Israel's territory yet. And just listen to the conversation that ensues between this old prophet and the prophet that has clarity. Verse 15, then he said to him, once he knows that it's him, come home with me and eat bread. Now, this old prophet's sons have already told him the conversation that took place between King Jeroboam and this younger prophet. So he's already well aware of what God told him when he prohibited him from eating or drinking in this place or returning the same way. So you see the enticement in verse 15 for him to do exactly what God's clear word had prohibited him from doing. Come home with me. Eat bread. This prophet, verse 16, said, I cannot return with you, nor go with you, nor will I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. For a command came to me by the word of Yahweh, you shall eat no bread, nor drink water there. Do not return by going the way which you came. In principle, you see the same things that we've talked about the past few weeks happening here. God's word is clear enough to be understood, received, and even explained and articulated after it's been initially given. God's word is clear, and he still has clarity. He's still clear on what God had said by his clear word. And you'll notice how he's introducing what he was told. Verse 17, a command came to me by the word of Yahweh. Verse 2, what we've already read, he cried against the altar by the word of Yahweh. He said, thus says Yahweh, etc. So he, he's articulating not only what God said, but that God said it. This was by the word of Yahweh, by the word of Yahweh, by the word of Yahweh. Look at verse 18. This older prophet said to him, I also am a prophet like you. And an angel spoke to me by the word of Yahweh, saying, bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water but he lied to him. And so he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. This fourth scene unfolds another prophet's perversion of a clear word from God. God's already clear word is being perverted 
by an outside influence, by another prophet. What he's doing is obscuring the clarity of God's word. There was no ambiguity in this young prophet's mind until now. There was no question about what God had said. He saw it clearly. He knew it clearly. He knew it certainly. He had articulated this, what he was told by God, numerous times prior to this moment, leading up to this moment. The clarity that he had was obscured by this old prophet. And he did it with just one verse. It only took one verse to undo all the clarity possessed by this first prophet. I am a prophet like you, and an angel spoke to me by the word of Yahweh. All the clarity that he had seems to be undone in a single verse with a a couple phrases. In verse 19, the obscurity results in him doing the very opposite of what God commanded him. If you've ever had the question in your mind, how harmful can a little bit of uncertainty be? How harmful, how damaging, really how ruinous can just a little bit of obscurity in my mind about what God has said actually be to my life? Let this be the answer. It it might be the end of your life. Whatever the issue is, we might have varying issues that God's word is, uh, that, that remain in our mind obscure about what God has said. But just recognize that you don't know whether that could be the end of your life. If you've never thought about what we've talked about here uh, and even mentioned last week during communion, if you've never thought about the impact that the gospel has on the practice of communion, well, I've never thought about uh, whether Jesus died once or whether it's valid to say that he was sacrificed and absorbed the wrath of God multiple times, right? That's what the doctrine of transubstantiation and the, the system of Roman Catholicism would say. If you've never thought about what Scripture says about Christ having only sacrificed himself once, uh, that could, be, that could be damaging to your soul if someone wanted to persecute you on the basis of that doctrine. If you were living in the 16th century, that would have happened. The issue about which we remain unclear impacts our life, uh, and probably in ways that we don't even know. We'll continue reading and see how it impacted this prophet. It did. It was fatal for him, this obscurity that was introduced. Verse 20 and following says, Now it came about as they were sitting down at the table. So he's at the old prophet's house, disobedient to the Lord. And it says, As that was happening, the word of Yahweh came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, saying, Thus says Yahweh. Now he's about to get another clear word from God. Not directly from God, but through this prophet. 
because you have disobeyed the command of Yahweh and have not observed the commandment which Yahweh your God commanded you. Notice the authority being mentioned three times, command, command, command. Because you have not observed the commandment which Yahweh your God has commanded you, verse 22, but have returned and eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, eat no bread and drink no water, your body shall not come to the grave of your fathers. That means he's not going to die an ordinary death. He would have been buried alongside with his family after he saw a ripe old age. Would have been ideal. This prophet tells him, in prophetic fashion, this will not happen. And you'll notice some of the same things that were characteristic of the first prophet's prophecy. It was direct, clear, prophetic, specific, accurate, fulfilled. Those same things characterize now this second prophecy. It's direct, it's clear, it's prophetic about the future, it's specific, it's accurate, and it's fulfilled eventually. Look at verse 23. It came about after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled the donkey for him for the prophet who, had, who he had brought back. Now when he had gone, a lion met him on the way and killed him, and his body was thrown on the road with the donkey standing beside it. The lion also was standing beside the body. This is no ordinary encounter with a hungry lion. Two meals, the prophet and the donkey, and the lion only kills the man and doesn't even consume the body. This lion, similar now to the prophet who was, uh, was prepared with a clear word from God, this lion has also been prepared by God. Decreed by God to kill the prophet and not even do what's natural to lions, which would have been to eat the body. Verse 25, and behold, men passed by. On the road, they passed by and saw the body thrown on the road and the lion standing beside the body. So they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. Now the, the story uh, is gaining traction. This is the local news you know, making the local news headlines, you won't believe what happened with that prophet who said what he said to King Jeroboam. He's laying there dead in the street, and the lion's just standing there next to his body. Verse 26, now when the prophet who brought him back from the way heard it, he said, it is the man of God who disobeyed the command of Yahweh. Therefore, Yahweh has given him to the lion which has torn him and killed him according to the word of Yahweh, which he spoke to him. God's sovereignty over this is not lost on the old prophet. This is God's doing. Verse 27, then again, he spoke to his son saying, saddle the donkeys for me. And they saddled it. He went and found his body thrown on the road with the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body, nor torn the donkey. So the prophet took up the body and the man of God and laid it on the donkey and brought it back 
and he came to the city of the old prophet to mourn and to bury him. He laid his body in his own grave, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. After he had buried him, he spoke to his son, saying, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones, for the thing which surely will surely, the thing shall surely come to pass, which he cried by the word of Yahweh against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria. So he recognizes he is a true prophet of God, even though he disobeyed. And he wants to be buried in in the same place. This would have been a bizarre scene to witness, to be passing by, to see this one prophet, this first prophet laying there between or next to a lion and a donkey, just standing. This was uh, the, the absurdity, so to speak, of this scene uh, really is a commentary on the absurdity of obscuring God's word. This is what happens, or this is the folly of obscuring God's word. It became a commentary on the folly of obscuring God's word. I want to direct your attention back to the perversion of the clear word of God in verse 18. Two phrases is all it took to obscure God's word. Just two. Simple. The two phrases in verse 18, you'll notice is, the old, old prophet says, I also am a prophet like you. And the other phrase is, an angel spoke to me by the word of Yahweh. Those are the two phrases. First, the first thing, and really these, these two phrases could be captured uh, in the, the prophet's putting forward his own authority and then outside authorities. His own authority over God's word, and then his uh, or outside authorities to God's word. The first thing that the pro- this old prophet does is he establishes his own authority. He recognizes that this man is a prophet, and so he can't just come to him or, or, or let him think that he's just an ordinary individual. He needs to make sure that the young prophet knows, I'm a prophet too. Here's my resume alongside yours. The authority you have to speak for God, I have that same authority. So we're equals in that regard. And now that he's established his own authority to be equals with this first prophet, now he can introduce another authority that really exalts itself over the word of God that was already clear because he says, an angel spoke to me. You'll notice that this is the first time an angel has been mentioned in the whole passage. What did the first prophet keep saying? Uh, I received the word from, from Yahweh. Yahweh said, by the word of Yahweh, direct revelation from God. Well, this prophet says, I received revelation from God as well, but it came by an angel as well. In addition 
to what you heard, the way you received the prophecy. I know you have the word of God, but I have the word of God and an angel, something else. The lesson to be learned here really is uh, the introduction of other authorities alongside God's word does not help the clarity of God's word, but it can only obscure God's word. And the same holds true for us. Wherever we have embraced another authority alongside God's word for anything, for your, your parenting, for your marriage, for life uh, under the authority of your parents, children, <laughs> for what we should be doing as a church, anything, wherever you have embraced another authority on par with God's word, then you have, to that degree, introduced obscurity into God's revelation. How could it be any other way? Uh, unless you're willing to say that another authority can be clearer than God, then whenever you embrace that authority alongside God's word, then you've in automatically dampened or lessened the clarity of God's word. To say that something else could be on, on par with God's word uh, in its authority, you would also have to believe that it must be on par or superior to God's word in its clarity. And we'll talk about some of the, the ways that, that we actually fall into that trap today. Just think about the temptation that may exist even in your own heart to believe what God has said for some other reason than that God has said it. This prophet is essentially making a case that he ought to be believed what he received from God as a likewise prophet, what he ought to, uh, what he the basis on which, excuse me, the basis on which he ought to be believed is that he has an additional layer of authority alongside this revelation, an angel. Whenever we, we do something similar, whenever we say, believe God because, and we give some other reason outside of God's own voice, outside of God's own character that God said it, we're doing essentially the same thing. We're saying God is worthy of being believed because of some other authority. Think of saying, I believe the Bible because my parents said. Well, the child who believes the Bible ultimately because he trusts his parents, who does he trust most, God or his parents? In that situation, it would be his parents. If my parents said something else, I wouldn't believe God. It means that your trust and confidence are in parents and not God. Or um, I believe the Bible because of some practical benefit it'll bring to me. I believe the Bible because I know it can fix my marriage, right? God has good ideas about marriage, so because I love marriage more than God, I'm willing to even do whatever God says to fix my marriage not for God's honor, first and foremost. The Bible does have lots of good ideas for how to fix a marriage. But if you come to God's word and you believe God's word for that reason primarily, then you have 
made God worthy on the basis of what he can do for you, your marriage or some other practical benefit. Or maybe even I believe the Bible because it provides the best and most reasonable explanation for what I see happening in the world. You know, somebody could say, of all the options out there, the Bible makes the most sense. Yeah, that's why I believe it. The Bible does make the most sense of of all of life. But if somebody believes it on the basis that according to their finite understanding, when they put the Bible on one side of the scale and other things on the other side, they say, I'm going to weigh, weigh these things, and, and whichever one is most reasonable to me, according to my wisdom, that's the one I'll go with. And they test Scripture and say, well, that one has passed the test of my reasoning. I'll believe it. Well, what's the standard in that case? Not God. It's the human individual. And he is arrogant enough in that, in that case to think that he can stand in judgment of God's Word and validate or not its credibility. That is arrogant. The Thessalonians did not take this approach, and so they are commended by God through the Apostle Paul. Paul expresses thankfulness about the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. Listen to what Paul tells tells this church. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. The person who is worthy of uh, commendation, not condemnation, the person who is worthy of commendation is the one who receives God's word as if it's just God's word. They receive it as if it possesses the clarity, authority, perfection, righteousness, etc., as God himself. The Thessalonians did that. They treated God's word when they heard it from Paul, not like it was Paul's words. They didn't say, man, Paul is so brilliant. He is so articulate. He is so passionate when he speaks. I got to believe what that guy says. No, they heard Paul and recognized that the words coming from Paul's mouth were God's words, and so they believed it because it was God's words. This prophet in 1 Kings 13 would have been wise to hold to that. We make similar mistakes. Uh, We can embrace other authorities uh, similar to this prophet, and that's been done for a long time. Um, We talked about even some of those last week. But just think of the outside authorities that we can be tempted to embrace. And whenever we do that, by the way, whenever we embrace outside authorities to, um, as if they're on par with God's word, we have always done what this old prophet did first, which was establish himself as an authority. It has to be that way. Before you embrace anything else as an outside authority, you have already exalted your own understanding as if you possess the wisdom 
to decide who should stand in judgment of God's word. But whenever we introduce other authorities, uh, this is what, what's happening. And this occurs all the time uh, in the church. It occurs in seminaries. It occurs in, uh, you know, I've seen this in a biblical counseling movement where the power for sanctification doesn't come from God's word. It comes from really good extra biblical resources. And so the authority of God's word is demeaned uh, by looking to other things to provide the sufficient power and clarity for God's word. The goal is always to be taught by God himself. Regardless of the medium, whether it's coming through a prophet, like we see in the story, whether it's coming through uh, Bible teachers in the local church, whether it's coming from the various ministries uh, coming through the members of the local church, the goal is always to receive God's voice on God's authority with God's clarity, to really truly be taught by God himself. That's what we should be aiming at. Obscurity has throughout church history been introduced into God's clear word in various ways, one of those ways being exalting the church herself as the authority. People have said, the way that you know what God's word clearly says is by consulting with the church, the church, the church whoever that is, the church holds the key to you having clarity on scripture, on what God has said. God can't speak clearly for himself. That's the church's job. We, we read uh, about the, the Catholic religion doing that throughout church history. The Council of Trent uh, said, no one relying on his own skill shall in matters of faith and of morals pertaining to the edification of Christian doctrine, resting the sacred scripture contrary to that sense which Holy Mother Church, whose it is to judge of the true sense and interpretation of the Holy Scriptures, have held and always holds. They're saying the, the, it's the church's the job. The church has the authority to determine once and for all what God has said. No, the church doesn't have that authority. God has that authority. The church's job is merely to discover what God has said. Church councils don't have a corner on the clarity of God's word. And to exalt church councils as an authority if you want to know what the Bible says, to run to a church council as if they hold the answer alongside God's word, that introduces obscurity into the clear words of what God has revealed. Uh, even the, the catechism of the, the Council of Trent, so the, the Council of Trent in the 1600s, they're responding to the Reformation. They developed a catechism that says, here's what the church ought to be teaching. So they systematized this, and the priests in the Roman Catholic system have now a catechism in addition to everything else written to say, this is what you have to teach. And it's interesting to note, in the catechism, they actually say, you know what, it's a good idea to translate this into all the common languages of the people. Don't translate the Bible. That's too obscure We've come up with a catechism that tells you what to teach. Translate that. Obviously, obscurity is, is what's intended there in introducing that authority. 
even creeds, confessions, and statements of faith. They are not clearer than God's word. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever consulted uh, or thought in your mind, I can't understand this passage. Where I really need to gain clarity is from a John MacArthur commentary, a John MacArthur study Bible. He, he's got the corner on clarity. And rather than wrestling with the passage, I can gain clarity on, by reading John MacArthur or some other good resource, a statement of faith. I don't know what to believe about that. What does Grace Bible Church say? Pull up the website. How do you know if, if that's accurate? How do you know if that's clear? You would have to understand what God has said about it, which brings you right back to the same passages that you might up until now be confused about. You've got to do the work and gain clarity. Now, obviously, I'm not discouraging other resources uh, to, to be helpful in gaining clarity, but it's not true because John MacArthur said it. It's not true because John Piper said it. It's not true because John Calvin or William Tyndale or anyone else said it. You've got to gain clarity from God's word. God's word is clear. And when we gain clarity truly from God's word, it really doesn't matter what anybody else says because we know what God has spoken. And we don't need to have anybody else's commentary to know what God has said. To know how they've articulated it might be incredibly helpful. But to know what God has actually said, once you know, you don't need to be told by anybody else. There's going to be a day when that is true of all of Israel. That's the, the, the new covenant is predicted. <coughs> Excuse me. They will all be taught by God. And they will not say each one to his neighbor, know Yahweh, know God, know the Lord, because they'll all know God. Beware of really helpful resources that introduce other authorities alongside God's word. Um, there are men, teachers, Bible teachers who have historically been faithful, uh, who would teach that God's word needs some other help being clear. Just watch out for that. In our day, and I'll just close with this, in our day, the, the most popular prevailing authority alongside God's word has become ethnicity and culture, cultural upbringing, your cultural or social location is able to make God's word clear to you, right? You have to be black or experience oppression of some sort to have clarity on what the Bible says about justice. Uh, and, and people who have been historically helpful and sound have bought into that lie. You'll notice the parenthetical uh, words of the writer just simply said, he lied to him. No kidding. He said, do something God didn't say do. No kidding. He's lying, pretending to have clarity that he absolutely does not possess. Your, 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 cultural, your cultural upbringing, your social location, your ethnicity is not any problem to God speaking clearly. 
And if you know what God's word said, it doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter where you grew up. It doesn't matter how much uh, affluence you had access to or currently have access to. God has spoken clearly. And so long as you are saying what he has said, then you are safe. You can experience the blessing of clarity and avoid whatever ruin is, is introduced by obscuring God's word. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for granting clarity, for even being eager to give us clarity from the clarity of your word. Uh, you'll tell us uh, in what we'll read in Psalm 19 uh, shortly that the unfolding of your words gives light. I pray that for the members of GBC, that as your words are regularly unfolded, as they are explained, taught with conviction, that you would grant light to those who hear. Uh, help us to maintain purity at the inner life level so that we can have clarity ultimately, so that we can have greater fellowship with you, the very purpose for which you saved us and even created us. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.